This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. love you. Lord, we say pour your goodness and grace on Sean. I pray bless him and Liz and the family. Bless their church in Reading as they grow and press through and make big calls about buildings and direction. I pray let your favour rest on them. And I pray, Lord, let him impart to us some faith, some grace, some transforming word this morning. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sean. So it really is good to be back with you. It's been a year since I've been in God First on a Sunday, but I did see many of you at West Point, hanging out with you and uh, just enjoying getting to know more of you. For many of you, though, probably won't know me or my family, so my wife Liz is over here. So we've been married for 16 years now. We've got three children. Joshua, who's 14. Uh, Lucy, who's 8. 12. 12. <laughs> Sorry, 12. And our youngest... You were doing so well. I was doing, ...is Zoe, and she's 8. And I think she's out with the children's work now. My wife here is a real wind of myself spiritually. So I think that's great. But I felt this morning I wanted to remind some of you or maybe tell you for the first time that Jesus is our true husband. Now that is a strange concept for uh, for maybe many in this room, or if you're a single person, or if you're a, a husband already, this may seem like strange terms, but the Bible uh, speaks that kind of language around who Jesus is regarding his people. In fact, in Revelations 21, it talks about the church coming to Christ as his bride. And throughout the Gospels, the, which are the accounts of Jesus' life, there are many references which talks of a bride and a bridegroom. And Jesus being the bridegroom. And so this morning, as I was, uh, Howard asked me way back in the autumn term, could I come? I was just praying and this uh, kind of message, this reality of Jesus being our true husband, I thought it would just be helpful in this phase of the establishment of God First Church, would be helpful to remind you of these things. So when Howard said, Sean, do you want to talk about sex? Uh, I said, well, maybe, Howard, but can I just say this is one of the things I'm buzzing with at the moment. Think I pray for you regularly as a church, as I do for the family, Keller. I am really with you guys. I just want you to thrive. And uh, uh, regardless of all the challenges you're facing, I can tell that it's, you seem so much more solid here this morning uh, after 12 months. You're probably very unaware of that. You may be able to see some of the holes and the gaps and the challenges. But for me to come here, I can see you're so much more together I don't quite know how to describe that, but it is a joy to see that Jesus is building you together as living stones. But where we're going to go this morning is we're going to jump into uh, my favourite gospel, uh, Gospel of John. But before I do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background, uh, just so that you can hit the ground running. How long have I got, Howard? 30 minutes or so? Probably 
till quarter past, maybe 20 past. Okay. And so, I just want to, just did a few things to say, a few comments as a background, and then we're going to jump into an account uh, in Jesus' life. Uh, the first thing I want to say is the, if you want to stand, to understand marriage, probably the best echo, uh, no, rather, if you want to understand Trinity, the best echo of that in understanding how God the Father and Son relate to one another is marriage. We see that uh, way back in Genesis 1 verse 27. In the image of God, he made male and female. And it is good to remind ourselves that although Jesus never married physically whilst on earth, that he is a bridegroom. So you just need to be aware of, as we read this story, Jesus is the bridegroom to his people. The other thing to remind you of is a quick bit of history. I love history. And one just, because this will make sense of what we're going to read. In the time that we're joining this story, in terms of the history of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, before this, there was a huge amount of needle or uh, animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. That a huge history. The Samaritans, uh, in one sense, if you could understand that the geography is important to a degree, in the north was Galilee, where Jesus kind of grew up. In the middle was Samaria, where the Samaritans came from. And below that was Jerusalem. So the centre of worship was in Jerusalem. We see Jesus moving around there, ultimately moving to Jerusalem towards the end of his life. But right in the middle was Samaria. And the history of that is that over centuries, the area of Samaria was uh, effectively was ransacked. The people were removed and other peoples were dropped in there by the, the conquerors. And these people who were originally Jews, in one sense they intermarried. And their faith, the God's people were supposed to be distinct in the way that they lived and who they worshipped. That was all watered down. It was all mixed up. And there was animosity between those in the south, those around Jerusalem, and those in the middle, the Samaritans. Those around Jerusalem thought that the Samaritans had sold out. And as such, there was a needle between the two. It got so bad that the Samaritans built their own place of worship at Mount Gerizim. And that so infuriated the Jews that at one point the Jews went forward and they ransacked Mount Gerizim to say that's a false place of the worship of Yahweh. You've got to come to Jerusalem. That so infuriated the Samaritans that 150 years before Jesus was born, a bunch of Samaritans went down and they took dead bodies into the temple courts right at the height of a religious festival, which meant the Jews could now not celebrate that festival because the temple had been made ceremonially unclean. I mean, there was huge issues between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, you need to understand that when we jump into this story. It wasn't a casual thing, it was huge. The other thing to bear in mind is, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is right back at the beginning of the Bible was a man called Jacob. And... When Jacob got of age to marry, his dad sent him back to his own people to marry because his dad didn't want his boy Jacob marrying a foreigner. He wanted to make sure that his boy Jacob married someone from his own tribe, his own people. And so he sent him back to his ancestor's land and it was at a well that he met his wife Rachel. Now Rachel was acceptable because she was from the same tribe, the same clan, the same family. So Jacob met his wife, who was racially pure, who was of the same tribe, the chosen people of God, the Jews. He met her, Rachel, at a well. 
Now, if you were a Jew at this time, you'd understand this. You would understand the significance of Samaria. You'd understand the significance that Jacob met his wife, who was racially pure, of the people of God at a well. They would have known that, would have triggered. be a done deal for them. Now, with that as our background, let's jump to John chapter 4, which is an account of Jesus meeting a woman at a well. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 30. And then we're going to jump from 39 to 42. I, I personally am caught up with getting to know who Jesus is. And so we're going to read a big chunk of his life this morning, but just hang in there. This is the Jesus that we've been singing about this morning, that many of us gather to daily, who are putting our hope and trust in. We're going to read something of how he deals with a woman that he meets at a well. John 4, verse 4. Now he, Jesus, so Jesus is now in the south, he's now going to have to go north. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, i.e. twelve noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. So the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Well, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you've no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet as time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
and they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for this opportunity to try to explain what you meant when you inspired John to write this. Holy Spirit, help me to faithfully represent the things that Jesus said, that we would know him as our true husband, that we'd know that he is the saviour of the world. And that Holy Spirit, that you would bear fruit in us and you would gift us that we might be a worthy bride to him. And that we would be worthy spouses to one another. In Jesus' mighty name, Amen. Amen. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he often surprises us in the way he interacts with people. And we can see this here. Because when we begin to plumb and explore and maybe understand the context of this, we see how remarkable this interaction is. As Jesus comes, as I'll later explain, as the true husband to this Samaritan woman in the heat of a day, we can see numbers of characteristics in the way that he relates to her. The first is that he is faithful to his bride, the church. He is faithful in that Jesus, it's the middle of the day, he's been walking, presumably it is very hot, he's clearly thirsty and hungry. Jesus was fully man. He got tired, he got weary, he got thirsty, he got hungry. Jesus, tired and weary as he was, Yet he was true to his future bride, which is us. He saw in this Samaritan woman, presumably, the many nations that were to come in. He saw in this Samaritan woman, presumably, something of us here in Cheltenham gathering this morning. He saw his bride and even though he was tired, even though he was thirsty, even though he was weary, he was faithful. He was reliable to that which he was called to do. He was faithful to her. He pressed through despite his weariness, despite his thirst. He was sitting down and presumably he engaged this woman as she came towards him. He was faithful. For God had called him to be the saviour of the world, not just the Jews. And now here he was, embarking on a conversation in order that salvation would come to the Samaritans and ultimately to all of the world, ultimately to us. Jesus was a faithful husband to his bride. He was faithful to her. Jesus took the initiative He's sitting there and yet he reached out to her. Protocol would say that he shouldn't. 
in his time, if you were a religious teacher, if you were a Pharisee, you would not associate with a woman. Some Pharisees were so zealous, so it was called the bruised and bloody Pharisees. If they saw a woman coming down the side of the street towards them, they would often close their eyes. It sounds ridiculous to us, doesn't it? They would literally close their eyes and try to fumble past. They thought it was better to be bruised and bloodied, but pure, because they've not had to look at a woman, than it would be to be unpure, to look at a woman. And yet Jesus, he takes the initiative. He asks her for a drink. He had a real need. He was thirsty. And rather than wait for his disciples, he took the initiative and he reached out and he crossed multiple divides. He crossed the racial divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's very difficult for us to grasp and to plumb. He crossed the divide of a male talking to a woman. I was in Dubai last week. And I read in the paper that a man and a woman have been jailed for a year for kissing in public on a beach. I mean, it sh- I mean, I just couldn't comprehend it. I said, no, I must have misunderstood this. But that's literally because their culture was you, you shouldn't be seen. And yet Jesus crossed that. He was alone. And so the Samaritan woman, she's caught out. She's saying, how can you talk to me, a Samaritan woman? But it was more than that. Why was she there alone in the middle of the day? Why was she not at the other wells near her home village? Well, the, the scholars, the theologians, the writers on this passage suggest that it was probably because of shame. They're in a shame-honour culture. And a lifestyle that's been revealed in this passage that she's had five husbands and the one she's now with was not her husband meant that she was a social outcast. And so here, once again, true to Jesus' nature, he's amongst those he's not supposed to be amongst. He's associating with those he's not supposed to associate with. He's alone with the people he's not supposed to be alone with. And yet he was without sin. And yet he took initiative in those moments. He reached out, he crossed divides, barriers, spoken barriers, mental barriers. Physical barriers, just going through Samaria, not avoiding it as many of his contemporaries would have done. Jesus took the initiative. He was faithful, he took the initiative and he was a friend, not a critic. To this dear woman, he was a friend to her and not a a critic. Did you notice in this passage, he didn't condemn her? He's got a real track record of that. Jesus met another woman caught in the act of adultery. The man was nowhere to be seen. The crowd were baying for her blood. He wrote in the sand something, we don't know what. And he just said to her, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. When you encounter Christ, he comes to you as a friend, not a critic. He doesn't condemn you. But in his grace and mercy, he doesn't leave sin unattended. Jesus as the friend who isn't a critic, he did help her to face herself. The reality of she'd had five husbands and the man she was with now wasn't her husband. She had to face that. That awkward moment did hang in the air. You can see she changed the subject. It was, well, that, have you had that moment where, oh, that was awkward. Let's change the subject. She knew that moment. 
When you have a true friend who's not a critic, they help you face yourself whilst not condemning you. This is what the faithful husband Jesus was to this woman. He was remarkable. He gave her life. He literally, spiritually awoke. He engaged with. He gave life to this harlot daughter of Samaria. In her culture, to have one or two husbands, if your husband died or divorced you, that would be unusual. You'd maybe have one or two husbands, maybe three in exceptional circumstances, but to have five husbands and now to be living, that you were a harlot. There wasn't any other word for you. No wife has five deaths. She's not widowed five times. She was a harlot, a prostitute, an immoral woman. And yet Jesus gives her spiritual life. He doesn't condemn her, but he gives her life. It seems from this encounter, we can only assume she's become spiritually regenerated. Somehow she's discovered new life. She now knows that Jesus is the Christ. And that can only come from being a new creation, through being regenerated. That is something she could not have come to on her own. Clearly, through encountering Christ, she received new life. She became a new creation. Suddenly, the old had gone and the new had come. And when she said to her villagers, could this be the Christ? It wasn't the question she was asking. For it seems that she'd already come to faith or an understanding and become the evangelist to her people who would have nothing to do with her because she was a homewrecker. This harlot daughter of Samaria had been given a new life. And many in her village came to saving faith in Christ through her receiving new life. Suddenly she was now being able to be amongst those who were going to worship the Father in spirit and truth, not in Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem but as the living stones being built together. You see, Jesus was to lead her into true worship. Jesus' words in verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of the worshippers the fathers seek. Jesus leads this harlot daughter of Samaria into worship of the Father in spirit and truth. She leads others into worship of the Father in spirit and truth. Verse 13, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Christ because of the woman's testimony. Jesus came and gave this woman the open door to worship the Father in spirit and truth. This seventh man in her life, seven in the Bible means perfection, the five husbands and the man with her now, the six, she's now met the seventh man, the perfect husband to her. The husband who is faithful, the husband who takes the initiative, the husband who's a friend, not a critic, the husband who gives her life. The husband who leads her into true worship of the Father in spirit and truth. He is now 
in her life. She's met her true and perfect husband. And as we look at this story, it's, it really is breathtaking. And there's so much in this that we've not able to get to. And yet that in itself is, it is beautiful, it's magnificent, it's stirring. For we know that ultimately the bride of Christ is, is clearly not a Samaritan woman who's long since dead. It's, it's the people of God. It always was. This is, in many senses, uh, the whole story of the Bible starts with one, but actually it was always about the nations being gathered in. And this woman is, once it's a story of that. The nations are now being gathered in, and the nations have been gathered in to be the bride of Christ, a people. And yet, what do we do with that? How do we encounter that? If you're married here, and you're a husband, are there any husbands in the house? I should say it in a more uh, American way. For the few husbands there, are there anyone here, any guys here who want to be a husband? Can you put your hands up? Put your hands up if you sense... Come on, in faith, no, come on, don't worry who's in it. Is anyone here, you know, actually I do have faith, I would like to be a husband at some point in my life. If, if that's what God's got for me, there's no shame in this. Is there just a few people? Okay. There's someone at the back, Zach's got his hand up. Well done, Zach. That's it, I'll tell you. There is a place... There is a place for singleness and there is a place for marriage and we need to honour both. But here's another question. Is there anyone here who, let's put this this positively, there's anyone here, you've not yet married and you're a woman and you would like to be married, you would like to have a husband in your life. Is there anyone here? It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. We're not talking about whether you're secure in singleness but you sense that's the desire that you'd like to have in time. So yeah, sorry, you're not paying. I'm engaged. You're engaged. Oh. I sense that God would find that this would be a good time just to consider what kind of husband do you want to be, whether you're married yet or not. And for the wives here, and for the women who aren't yet married, and would like to be married for, for you, what kind of husband do you want? Have you thought about that yet? And passages like this start to lift our gaze up as Jesus the perfect husband that somehow marriages are supposed to reflect something of this. That the husband in a marriage is supposed to relate to his wife somehow as Christ relates to the church. And the church somehow is to respond to her husband in the way, I guess, the Samaritan woman responds to Christ. There's something of this we need to plumb and and explore and ponder rather than quickly dismiss. Because this morning, if you're a husband or you want to be a husband or if you're a woman and you'd like a husband, this is supposed to be what he's like. That you would be a husband or have a husband who is faithful to you. A husband who, though tired and weary, though he is worn out, though he is thirsty, though he's had a long, hard day, he is supposed to be faithful to you. When you're at your best on your wedding day, or you feel you've lost your way, he is to be faithful to you. 
You're supposed to be a husband or you're supposed to have a husband who takes the initiative, who reaches out to you, who crosses the divide that inevitably come as part of married life. He reaches out across them. He is the one who is to take the initiative as you too, wives, are supposed to take initiatives and be faithful too. We're supposed to be, I guess, husbands and wives that are friends, not critics who don't condemn, but allow you to face yourself without condemning you. We're supposed to be husbands and wives, I think, who give each other spiritual life, who lead us to the Father, who believes for the best. We're supposed to be husbands and wives who lead one another into true worship, in spirit and truth. Come to him. That's who we're supposed to be. That There's no room to wriggle around that. For Jesus is our true husband to us and he models how we should relate to one another as spouses. And of course the crux of that all comes because it may be, if you're like me, I'm an activist, I'm very reactionary. And so when I read this I see, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try harder. Come on, I'm going to go again. I, I spoke to a guy recently and he told me, he is my prayer partner, he said, I'm now going to commit to cleaning all the bathrooms twice a week. He's got five bathrooms in his house. He's got five teenage kids. And I said, I receive that. I just want to let you know you're going to fail. <laughs> We're one month in and he's doing all right. But I know, I tell it, three years from now, he'll have got a cleaner in. I know how it's going to go. Because as soon as you decide, I'm going to try harder, the reality is, and we all know this, you will fall short. Because there will come a day when you are tired and weary. And you don't want to cross that divide between you and your spouse anymore. You're done. A day will come when you don't actually want to give life to your spouse anymore. They need a dose of death. Because you've just about had enough of them. And the last thing you'll want to do is to lead them into true worship of the Father. You want to just kind of pray a curse on them that they will wither. Hey, this is buried life, isn't it? I'm sorry, you newlyweds have no idea what we're talking about now, do you? You guys, yeah, you do. Okay. Oh, yeah. You will later on, I'll tell you now. You're done. So trying harder to be more faithful and to take more initiative and to be a friend, not a cricketer. I'm going to try harder at giving life. I'm going to try harder at true worship. We all know you're going to fail. You are going to fall short. But the alternative to that doesn't seem too bright either. Because if you don't try, that leaves you in a mess. If you just say, this is who I am. I've tried, I can move no further forward. I'm done. I'm not going to try to be faithful to you. I'm not going to try anymore, taking the initiative. It's too hard, I'm not going to bother. This is me. I'm no longer going to try to give you life. Because when I do, it seems like death to me. I'm no longer going to take the initiative around you. I'm going to wait until you're ready. That is death as well you will fall short. So if trying harder gets you nowhere, if not trying is even worse, 
What are you to do? What are you to do? Well, friends, if we're to look to Jesus, we'll look to our true husband, who through his death on the cross became our substitute, who through his death on the cross somehow his righteousness credited to us, through somehow his death on a cross made it possible for us to be a new creation. Somehow his death on the cross and his resurrection, he's given us new life. Somehow through his death and his resurrection, now being in heaven, being our faithful high priest as well as our true husband, praying and interceding for us, sending the Holy Spirit down to dwell within us. As we look to him, we find he is the third way we're to choose. You see, because of the gospel, because of Christ's death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven as our high priest, as our true husband, waiting for us to come to him as a spotless bride, as a people. Because of the gospel, we are now a new creation. And so we can live a new life, for the old has gone and the new has come. Because of the gospel, we are forgiven. And so we can forgive each other. I want to say that again. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place, as our forerunner, you are a new creation. And so you can live a different life, free from the debts of the past. Because of the gospel, you can be forgiven and you are forgiven and so you can forgive. Because of the gospel, Jesus was faithful to you. So now you can be faithful to your spouse. You can, because Christ has done it for you. Because of the gospel, Jesus took the initiative for you. So now in him, you can take the initiative with your spouse. Because of the gospel, because Jesus came to you as a friend and not a critic, now you can come to your spouse as a friend and a critic as you gaze upon his death and his resurrection. You can do that because of the gospel. Jesus came and gave you new life. You are a new creation. And so you can give life to your spouse. Because of the gospel, you can now engage in and be part of true worship of the Father in spirit and truth. So you now can lead your spouse into the true worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. You see, it's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus being our true and faithful husband. It's all about us being an echo of how Jesus relates to his church. It's about male and female in marriaging, echoing the community of Trinity, which you looked at a year ago. 
We can do it, friends. See, Jesus is our true husband. And so in faith, we can be a true husband, a spouse, to our spouse. And when we fail, we can go again. Now I know we've just kind of skipped through Jesus' incredible encounter with a Samaritan woman. And I know for some of you, are, it seems as if you're not sure if you want to be married or not, but for some of you, you are married. And you know you need help in working this out. Not just in understanding that Jesus is your true husband, and he is, but actually how you work that out in your life. Myself and Liz and I guess others at Howard's will suggest we love to pray for you this morning. If you feel that you're now, well not you feel, you are divorced, you are estranged from your spouse and you know that you've made mistakes and you still feel guilty, condemnation, you still feel bad about that, you still feel there's just an unease in you for forgiveness and life just takes time, it's like an, there's layers of these things and we just want to pray for you too. Or if you feel you're not yet married and you feel so damaged by life and so unclear of how you could be a true husband, a true spouse, we want to pray for you. Or if we want to pray for you, if you don't really understand how Jesus could be a true husband to you because of your lifestyle, because of the choices that you have made. Maybe you were a home wrecker, maybe you weren't a home wrecker. Maybe there were other things that you just got caught up in. I just feel that Jesus wants to put his arms around you. He wants you to know the new life that he offers. That you'd know the Spirit of God flowing within you, these streams of living water refreshing you renewing you, being at work in you. Friends, I just feel Jesus wants to put his arms around you. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Embrace you.